Hello, welcome to the Mythology Marksmanship Podcast. I'm Morgan King, and I'm here with BJ DeGroot, owner of Strike Without Warning Muzzle Brakes. Makes the um, the tuning muzzle brake, the TMB, which I run. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of. Um, he's from Australia. He's joining us from Australia. How are you doing? Yeah, good, bro. How's things, Morgan? Oh, pretty good. Not bad at all. I cannot complain. Um. So, where are you at in Australia? I'm in uh, I'm in Melbourne. So I got a big farm. It's about forty minutes north of Melbourne. Um, so yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's not in the middle of nowhere. So um, yeah, it's nice out here. Plenty of uh, freedom and plenty of uh, space to do stuff. Right on. Um, how did you get into uh, precision rifle? Um, I've raced motorbikes pretty much my whole life. Um, and I had a couple of really big crashes over the last, what, four to five years. And, uh, the missus at the time was like, uh, you know, can we dial this back a bit? Cause every time you ride your bike, I'm scared you're going to die. Um, so I was like, okay, um, you know, I've always been into shooting. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I'd like to get back into shooting a bit more. Um, so I started researching all the different types of shooting that were big at the time and precision rifle looked like something that I'd be interested in and keen on. Um, and yeah, so I dipped into it just a little bit, but you know, as I'm sure you and everyone else that does PRS knows, you know, it happens pretty quickly and <laughs> yeah, I was hooked and I was all in straight away pretty much. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Uh, so, most of most of the listeners that are listening to this, well, we're from the United States, so it's pretty easy to get access to guns over here because, well, it's America, and uh, <laughs> you can, you just I don't know I I I guess my perception is is that it's a lot harder over there. I'm assuming to. Uh, Play yeah. The game. <laughs> yeah, for for some people it's borderline impossible. Yeah. So what's that like to get a hold? Of, like, because over here you have to be a law-abiding citizen, right? You cannot, you can't be a felony. No, no aggra- like uh, no uh, uh, violent misdemeanors, anything like that. No mental illness, whatever. You have to be able to pass a federal background check. Um, don't do drugs, things like that, to be able to go and buy a firearm. You know, it's not like people have a misconception that aren't in the firearm community because they've never bought one before. They don't understand, like, like not anybody can just go buy one, right? You can't just yeah. Okay. You still have to be like you. You still have to be a law-abiding citizen and uh, be mentally stable to go buy one. Um. But if you're that, which is, you know, 99% of the population, right? You can, yeah. if, as long as you're of age, so you got to be over 18 to buy a long gun, over 21 to buy a handgun. As long as you're that, you can go buy one. Um, okay. What's the process over there like? Because I oh, can walk in the store. The same. Okay, because I can yeah, walk in the store just... today. Like I can go right now, go to the store, buy, buy whatever gun I want. 
and come back and be back in, you know, the same amount of time it takes to go get groceries, other than the fact that I, there's about, you know, 20 minutes worth of paperwork to do and a background yeah. check. Okay. So, yeah, well, it's more or less the same in terms of what disqualifies you in America disqualifies you here. It's just um, there's a, a very long process and it's drawn out on purpose to, I guess, deter people from wanting to buy a firearm, I guess, because, you know, just the political landscape here, it's, you know, so anti-gun. They do everything they can very sneakily to make it tricky and hard so that people don't want to do it. Um, so to get a gun license here, you have to schedule a training course with uh, the police and that'll take between two to three months. Um, and then you'll go and you'll do a, a training course. Um, it's, it's all like theory and you'll do a test and you have to pass the test. Um, and then that allows you to apply for your gun license. So then you'll have to fill out like a very extensive, um, you know, application to be granted a firearms license. Like, you know, it, it's pretty crazy all the ID checks and then all the stuff that they go through. Um, and then that takes time as well. Um, and then typically, if everything goes well, within about six months, you'll get your license. Um, and then once you have your license, then you have to apply to be able to buy the firearm. Um, and you can only buy that type of firearm that you apply for. And then every time you want to buy a firearm again, you have to apply again to buy a firearm. And depending on where you live in Australia, like sometimes they'll deny you um, because say you want a 308, a hunting rifle, uh, you apply for it and buy it, they'll you know let you have your 308 hunting rifle. And then you go, okay, well, I want a, I want an F-Class 308 rifle because, you know, I want to shoot F-Class and I want it to be 308. And you apply for it and they'll go, well, denied because you've already got a 308, bro. You don't need a second one. So, um, you know, like, it depends on where you live. Like, yeah, they'll be really restrictive and tricky like that, whereas some places like Victoria where I am, Melbourne, um, you can apply for, you know, I think it's, I think it's up to like 14 guns. Um, whatever caliber you want, they don't really restrict you too much. So it's good in that regard being where I am. Okay. So you have yeah. to apply and obtain a license and be get some obtain some training from law enforcement. And then yep. you have to apply to own each gun and you can apply for up to 14. Yes, that's correct. Wow. And that's not, you know, handguns. Handguns is like... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, like to own a handgun, you're only allowed to own it for competition. To own a, like a shotgun or a rifle, you can only own it for hunting or competition. And the handgun, it'll probably take about a year and a bit just to get your first handgun. And there's a lot of stuff you have to go through to get it. Wow. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Well, I'm I'm glad that it's not like that here. So I guess that's obviously going to make so I mean so PRS over here, right? <clears throat> Which I guess just before we get into PRS, how did you, so okay so you got into shooting, but then like how did you learn about PRS and how how big is it over there? Um. Well, yeah, when I just started Googling and trying to figure out um, what, you know, the the cool types of competition and shooting at the time was, um, PRS was really just starting to take off. Um, it really started to just boom in the industry. So I guess when I was, like, looking at SHOT Show and all that kind of stuff, that's when, you know, all the PRS stuff was first starting to come out. And, I mean, I guess everyone, you know, when they're young, sometimes they want to be like a – a super sniper and stuff like that. So looking at long guns and being like, oh, yeah, you know what it looked, the cool types of long guns at the time, I guess that's just how I just gravitated towards it and sort of fell into it. Um, but, yeah, here, PRS, it's getting bigger every day, I guess. Um, it's, it's tiny in comparison to you guys. Um, you know, a national match for us will be anything between – you know, 50 to 80 people, um, which for you guys, my understanding, that's like a, a good size club match sometimes. So, um, it depends yeah, on where you're a, at. Yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot smaller here. Um, but, um, yeah, it gets bigger every day. It's just the, um, the thing stifling its growth, I guess, is just the political landscape and the anti gun thing. So, you know, that's probably the the biggest thing that stops us from growing. Yeah. Well, I imagine because, I mean, if it takes you six months to get a gun, right? Like here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's still because uh, you need to find a gunsmith to build one. I mean, that's. And then when you find a gunsmith to build one, you know, it's not quite as easy. There's some good options out there. Like Savage makes a good off the shelf. Um option you can buy some from like Brigar or some, stuff like that 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 works off the shelf so you know you you can find it at a box store but uh i mean if you really want a nice setup um you're gonna have to get into like the custom or semi-custom um deals which you either gonna have to buy from like say masterpiece arms makes a um like a full package you can just buy, but you know, that's going to take a couple months, I think. Yep. Uh, GA precision, same thing. Um, or you're going to find like a local gunsmith or somebody like, um, big, like you want, um, like that's good. Um, like you want to take Garrett priest, priest precision here in Utah. Uh, he's going to do this, does my barrels, you know, He's in a, a pretty fast turnaround, you know, of around a month. But then there's other gunsmiths I know of that it could take six months to a year. Um, just kind of depends on your gunsmith. So there's some time to get it. But, yeah, there you've got application plus all that time, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's, yeah, that's something that I guess a lot of people have to deal with. They're like, okay, you know, I've got to deal with the whole license thing. It'll take time. And then they'll get the license or while they're getting the license, they'll be like, okay, so now I need the rifle. And then they'll be like, oh, okay, well, Australia, you know, because we have to import everything and then we have, 
restrictive laws and a difficult customs like border force, then getting the gun, you know, takes even longer than it would in the States because availability is much lower. And then if you want to order something, then, you know, it takes a long time to get it here. And then, like you said, with the whole gunsmith thing, then there's that as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it is very tricky for some people. I mean, it's tricky even for us guys that have been in the sport for a while, you know, to get new guns because, yeah, it just takes time. Yeah. You know, minimum, minimum to get something if you want to order it and it's not in stock will be like, I don't know, three to four months. And that's if it is in stock in, in the States. Wow. So, yeah, it's a lot of time. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I know people kept asking me about um, the brakes and because I know several people that ordered them and they'd be like, man, when are they coming? And I'm like, well, it's got to come over from Australia, I imagine. So it's going to take some time. And then if it gets held up at customs, it might take a month. I don't know. You know, and yeah, well, they've all since got them, I think. But uh, yeah, it was just like they they didn't they didn't anticipate that, you know. Yeah, so I mean, at the moment, um, all the manufacturing is getting done in the states. Oh, it is is great. Um, I've just started doing that, Uh, but the I guess the uh, the hurdles that I deal with is the fact that. I live in another country and I have to do everything remotely. So I'm relying on other people to do things. And you know, when you rely on yourself, you'll get things done quickly. Whereas when you rely on other people, you know, you, you get done on their time. So you know, you get things made in Texas at the moment and then they have to be shipped to a fulfillment warehouse and then they have to be all like sorted and then packaged up. And then they can be sent out. So it just takes time to do those things. Gotcha. Um, so it takes a little bit longer than normal, but yeah. you know, once you know, when you order 150, 200 units or whatever, and then once they're all packaged up and done, then it's it's easy and it's smooth sailing. It's just, yeah, like okay. the last order, we just had to wait a couple of extra weeks to get it all done because you know sometimes delays and things like that happen. Yeah. Well, um, so you get into PRS, right? You. Yeah, you're, and then you're shooting. Which what did you start out with? Did you start out with six five Cree three hundred eight? Uh, I started out with three hundred eight. Okay, so you start out three hundred eight, and then you shoot this for X amount of time. I'm sure you you uh, used whatever type of brake, but now all of a sudden you decide to uh, to make your own brake. Kind of tell me what the thought process was and how you decided that that was going to be a good idea to come up with your own. So um, I moved from the 308 to the 65 Creed and I stayed with that up until the start of this year, which was a lot longer than I anticipated. Um, but while I was shooting 65 Creed and I'd been through a few different custom rifles, um, and I was shooting quite a lot, probably you know, 100 rounds a week um, just on my farm here. Um, I was just going through growth. How many a week? 100 rounds. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you know, lots of reloading, you know, lots of processing brass, um, 
And I was like, okay, well, how can I make this easier on me so I'm not spending so much time at the reloading bench? Um, I started researching things and I started to, you know, get interested in barrel tuners because I was like, okay, this seems like something that's going to make it easier for me so that I can just put in the same load and if and when it opens up over, you know, a couple of hundred rounds, I can just make a few adjustments with the tuner and just bring it back in. Um, and yeah, my loads, you know, don't really have to change. I don't have to do any load development to tweak things over the life of the barrel. So I was like, okay, this seems like something that'll save me some time. Um, so I started looking for barrel tuners and at the time, which was what, it was about two and a half, three years ago when I started all this, um, there was no um, barrel tuner and a muzzle brake uh, that was self-timing and all integrated into the one thing. So I was like, okay, well, you know, why is that? Um, Which I think there's only around. two as of right now, right? Yeah, there's only there's only two two Including major Including yours. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Um, so yeah, at the time, I couldn't figure out why nobody had put the two together. Um, and at the time I'd been contracting in the firearms world already anyway. Um, I'd been doing a lot of, uh, just like blueprints for like barrel contours and stuff like that. People would contract me for that. Um, I was working with a lot of AR-15 and AR-10 stuff doing like, uh, reverse engineering of stuff for like clone builds and stuff like that, like, um, you know, M110, you know, gas blocks and just things like that. Okay. Um, and yeah, so I was already working in the firearms industry, um, designing things. Um, I was like, okay, well maybe I'll just make my own then. Um, cause you know, it doesn't seem that complex or that tricky <laughs> from my perspective. So, Spent a couple of months banging out a design and um, quickly came up with a muzzle brake design and uh, it worked really well. You know, the barrel tuner worked really well. The muzzle brake worked fine. I was like, okay, well, I'm onto something now. Um, I'll go all in on this and um, make something as good as I possibly can. And it took probably another year and a half from that point. Um because, yeah, the, integrating the barrel tuner into it was, you know, was pretty quick and easy and that worked pretty good. But the holdup for me was I didn't want to make something where you had to compromise on the muzzle brake just to get the barrel tuner integrated into it, if that yep. makes sense. Yep, yep. Um, so because I am just who I am, you know, I'm, I like to be a perfectionist. So if something's not as good as it can possibly be, that just annoys me. So <laughs> I, uh, I spent probably a year just on the design of the muzzle brake, making a couple of different ones, you know, doing tons of uh, flow simula simulations on the computer, you know, um, and just really trying to learn how the gas uh, reacts when it comes out of the muzzle brake, how it reacts inside the ports, and just what you need to do to make an efficient muzzle brake and after about a year I came up with the the TMB's current design um, 
which at the time when I was testing all the muzzle rakes, um, I found through my testing that the Area 419 Sidewinder was more or less the most popular brake at the time. And the Fat Bastard, the APA brake, that was the best performing one at the time. Um, I found that I was consistently beating both of them in all of my recoil testing. Um, and that's when I was happy with the design and I released it and came to market with it. Yeah, which, so if anybody listening, uh, you, you need to go check out um, BJ's video um, on YouTube. It's on YouTube, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, when he talks about the design, he walks walks you through um, basically the theory behind the design, how it's how it is designed, and then shows him testing each one of them. Um, yeah, and uh, it's really hard to argue with the results of that <laughs> test. Like you, uh, people like the, um, right now. I'm not gonna knock any of the other breaks out there. Um, because they are good brakes. I've used several different ones, um, and they're good. They, they do a good job. But uh, when something does something significantly better, because, I mean, you can buy whatever brake you want. You can buy a separate tuner. You can put them together, blah, 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 and be fine um, if you want to have a tuner and a brake, right? Or you can buy yeah. a tuner-brake combo from other said company. But uh, – for me, the biggest thing about this this deal is you can save yourself a little bit of money by by buying yours in the combo, um, a yep. tuner and a brake, and it's it from all the tests I saw, it's at least twenty percent better than the closest, like next best thing, next best next best brake out there um, from the testing I can see, and uh, man, I. I I don't know. It's almost hard to believe what you show in your video, but uh, when you get it on a gun, it's immediately noticeable. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just the muzzle brake as well. Like it just does things a little bit differently, um, and that's what separates it. But once you once you understand what it's doing and why it's doing, then it makes it makes sense as to why it performs better consistently um, because when it comes to a muzzle brake, there's three major things uh, that are important with the muzzle brake design and that's nozzles, gas deflection and surface area. And the emphasis on the TMB and the muzzle brake in it is to use as much of the gas coming out of the muzzle as possible without it escaping out the end of the muzzle brake or it escaping out the sides of the muzzle brake because yeah. every little bit of gas that escapes is wasted opportunity to use that gas for energy you know, in fighting recoil. Yep. So, um, and it becomes very apparent once you, once you look at it and understand what you're looking at that, um, all the, all the major designs at the moment, they're all good products, you know, yep. Considering yep. what they do, they do their job. Effective. Yeah, they're great. You know, for example, you know, I ran the APA Fat Bastard, Little Bastard, pretty much exclu exclusively until I made my own brakes, and I think those things are excellent. You know, yep. Um, but they just don't do what the TMB does because 
and that's why the TMB is what it is. It's it's very complex and it's very tricky to make because, uh, like I was saying, nozzles, for example, um, the best way to describe it is if you've got a hose and you turn the hose and it comes out with a really tight stream and you've got like a hole that you're trying to get all of the water through and you aim the tight stream at the hole, the majority of the water is going to go through that hole. Yep. Um, with a little bit of it bleeding off the sides um, and hitting whatever surface the hole is in. Um, that's essentially what a normal muzzle brake is doing. So the majority of the gas is being pushed through the hole with small amounts of it bleeding off the sides. Yep. Now, what the TMB does and why it's so tricky to make it is we cut these cones, these nozzles inside the muzzle brake so that when the gas is going to come out into a port, it's like turning the hose so that it fans out into a cone um, and it's got that wide spread. So if you're obviously trying to do that and then get it through the same size hole, the majority of the water is going to be hitting the surface and not going through that small hole. Um, and that's probably the major thing that the TMB does is the gas is expanding in a meaningful way and it's deflecting left and right of that hole instead of being pushed through that hole. So you get more gas um, being used in the ports uh, and less escaping forward through the muzzle brake. Yes. And then the second biggest thing is surface area and the TMB, if you have a look in it, most people will describe it as these very deep V-shaped pockets in the TMB. Yes. And those V-shaped pockets, because there's twice as much surface area, there's you know, twice as much surface area for the gas to push against. Yeah. Um, so then, obviously, you're getting more, uh, more forward thrust generated by the muzzle brake, which counters the rearward thrust of the rifle being fired. So you get more recoil reduction. Um, there is a very big, um, glaring, obvious issue with the TMB and just every other muzzle brake design at the moment. And that is, if you grab any muzzle brake and you look at it from the side, if you can see through the muzzle brake, you can see daylight. Um, that's just an issue with the design. And that is that gas can escape sideways out of the muzzle brake without being used to you know, reduce recoil and be converted into, you know, forward thrust and energy. But that's just a major limiting design of how we make muzzle yeah. brakes at the moment, just manufacturing. Yeah, and but, a lot um, of people, see, I, I see a lot of people and a lot of muzzle brake manufacturers, they, they like to uh, do something because people complain about muzzle blast, which I don't know if you've noticed this, um, in the TMB, but I, I don't know. It's almost like the tuner. So a lot of them has, let me finish my first thought, I guess the, they use the first port as like a straight port. And then that's supposed to cut the gas coming back at the shooter. But yep. it, it basically creates inefficiency in their brake, right? Because it's not like, uh, well, if it's just a straight port, it's definitely not going to be as efficient as like with the TMB. If you look at it, which I, I recommend anybody listening to this to look up at the design of it and watch your video 
um, and how you do it, how you go about it. But basically, there's like a, a cone in there that's that acts like a blade to cut the gas off, which pulls it into a pocket that's shaped kind of like a parachute to catch the gas, essentially, right? That's correct, yeah. Well, a lot of people, um, a lot of other brakes, they don't have that pocket, but they, they have a port that's angled backwards to kind of do similar. But then they'll put the first port as straight to to point the gas away from the shooter um, and block some of the gas coming backwards. Well, and that reduces concussion. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but the TMB, if you get behind it, and the tuner itself almost acts like a block on the shooter because <laughs> yeah, it's it big <laughs> enough that it deflects the gas away from you like i mean it just physically when you're behind the gun and you look at the brake like you cannot see any of the ports so there's no way that the gas can come around that and hit you right maybe a little bit but not not much so it's almost like an, a hidden benefit of that as then i've showed people i'm like because they're like well doesn't that you know get a lot of concussion i'm like check this out and and you really don't get much concussion off of the brake Nothing, no, nothing no, no, like no. like uh, uh, the fat bastard or, or the little bastard or or some of the other brakes out there that that are trying to max, maximize efficiency and not not worried about um, comfort and ease of shooting. Yeah, yeah, that was just a uh, an unintentional benefit of the tuner being in the position that it's in. But yeah, it, it's funny that you bring up the whole um, reduced concussion design with a straight port for the first port because unfortunately that's mostly just marketing. So what's actually happening with that is the reason why you feel like there's less, um, less concussion is because the first port, it's just the gas coming out of it is coming out at a slower velocity and reduced pressure. And there's less, less gas because with a, a straight 90 degree design, um, you're just not deflecting as much gas left and right, and more gas is escaping through that first port. Um, so yeah, people are like, oh, you know, it's it's pushing the gas left and right, and it creates like a, a curtain, like a shield. Well, yes, it does in a small effect, but mostly what's happening is just less gas is coming out because it's less efficient, and that's why you feel less concussion because you know it's just less effective whereas a design that has a more typical 45 degree cut with a, a sharp v in it which deflects the gas gas less than right so it can't escape through the first port it feels like it's got more concussion because just more gas is coming out of it if that makes sense is there any other design out there that has that kind of the parachute shape to the port I don't know. Not that, that I'm aware of. Yeah, which you really, like I say, you guys got to check this out because that's, that to me is, well, when you look at it, um, you'll understand what we're talking about because it's, it, it is deflect, it's essentially defect, deflecting the gas into this parachute like shaped, um, port that, uh, is able to, as you say, I mean, it doubles the surface area and is able to catch the gas and and create forward thrust. And yeah, I mean, the thing 
and the and the ports are angled forward, so it's pushing the gas upward, um, which is also uh, helping to keep your muzzle flat. And I've noticed that my the under recoil, like my gun, I mean, I'm able to um, stay on target easier. I'm able to be able to spot my impacts easier, and I shoot a 156 grain bullet out of a 6.5 Creedmoor. Like that's all I've shot. I shot it on and off last year. Um, um, basically half the half of my matches, essentially, I shot the 6.5 Creed in and shot the six dasher in, and I could switch back and forth um, regularly between them, no problem. And then this year, I just decided, you know, with uh, just I I don't know I. The more I shot the 6.5 Creed with the TMB on it, I mean, the more it just kind of, I shoot it well and I can handle, I can manage the recoil and do just fine. So I kind of weighed, there's benefits of both and we've talked about it extensively on this podcast. There's benefits to yeah. both of them um, and which, it, there's no right or wrong answer when it comes to which caliber to run, but uh, 6.5 Creed more for me has been uh, pretty good. So, and I think the TMB definitely helps with that recoil. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, like you said, the ports, um, the best way to do it with conventional muzzle brake design is like a, a forward shaped, like half circle, um, which the TMB has, but they're angled forward slightly so that I guess the best way to envision it is if you have a flat surface and you shoot water at it, it's going to sort of just splash everywhere. Whereas if it's an angled surface angling forward, the water's going to splash against it and then it's going to sort of push forward and up. Yep. Um, so that's essentially what's happening with the gas. It's being concentrated into a single point, which increases pressure and increases performance. But then also the second benefit is of that is because the gas is pushing upwards, as it pushes forwards, that reduces your muzzle rise um, and makes you know spotting impacts easier. Oh yeah. And through my testing, that's the best way to do it because if you cut ports in the top of the brake, um, yes, you'll get muzzle rise reduction, but the uh, the con to that is because gas is escaping, you're reducing pressure inside the gas ports, and that pressure could have been used for recoil reduction so when you do that you lessen your recoil reduction um, in order to achieve muzzle rise reduction if that makes sense the other thing i've noticed is um, with ports out the top if they're not um, if you're not uh, really careful in the where those ports are in coming up um, that can um, create um, well you're going to see the gas coming out of that. Like it, it's going to make the, your image blurry in your scope. And then the other thing is, is Mirage can escape out of them too when it gets hot. So. Which, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, absolutely. I've noticed that before. If I wasn't careful, say with my fat bastard, I had to make sure that those, cause I can't my brake to the left a little bit for me. Just, it keeps my muzzle flatter. Um, yep. It's just something I do. Um, I've played with it and it just helps, helps me keep my, the muzzle rise going straight instead of, um, a lot of times my muzzle will jump to the left some, um, yep. so I just can't or just a smidge. 
And if I wasn't careful with the fat bastard, I would I would uh, have that gas going through my scope, and that was not good. So I had to be um, I had to play with it to make sure it was in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um. So I want to move on. I want to I want to get to a a topic that we talked about a little bit because uh, we talked a, a little bit last week and. We, we were talking about um, Australia versus um, U.S. PRS and yep. how the rifles could be set up differently for one versus the yeah, other. Um, yeah. What? So I guess. So I'm not edu- I mean, there's more videos say on you um, PRS in the United States, and I've seen a couple from um, PRS in like uh, Australia. But what to you? What what are some of the differences um, between the two? Well, probably the biggest difference would be because of the ranges that we have. Um, that that limits the types of matches that we can have. So, the majority of Australian ranges are about fifty to one hundred meters wide, and only five hundred meters long. Um, and depending on the range that you go to. Um, on one side of the range, you might not be able to shoot out to 500 meters. You might only be able to shoot out to 300 meters. So I'd say distance um, is probably going to be the biggest difference, um, whereas I would assume the majority of the ranges in America, especially on the West Coast, um, you know, they're all really, really long in terms of distance compared to us. Um, so you got a lot more freedom in that regard. So I'd say Australia, lately we seem to have pretty tight times. Um, lots of shots um, being made off quickly. Um, we've got a lot of movement as of late. Um, so you've got to move between a lot of different positions. Uh, not so much a lot of different targets because, like I said, you've got to fit um so many different stages into a, a small range width wise um you can't have too many targets out there so yeah lo- lots of different positions um we're starting to get smaller targets which is good um and yeah tight times and sometimes we're having a lot of uh you know wobbly props um and you know some offhand and sling type shooting and stuff like that, which isn't so much uh, as popular here uh, with the shooters as <laughs> you know. <laughs> I guess that's sort of a nice way reasons. to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I know there's there's different opinions on this. I'm like, for me, like off offhand type stuff. I think it sh- uh, a sling should be 100 percent allowed. Um, yeah, I think any match and the, there's tons of match directors that don't like, I say, can I use a sling? They say, no, um, I, I think they just, those are match directors that need to be educated. Like if I'm taking my gun into the field and I think there's a, a any, like, so when I'm going hunting, I always have a sling on my right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, uh, and, and it's because there is a chance that I might have to take that offhand shot and I'm always going to use a sling. I don't always use a cuffed sling 
but I still, which, and even when I'm shooting right now, I use, um, I put my, I loop my arm through this, like I put my arm through the sling. Um, and so it goes behind my, um, basically behind, uh, the back side of my arm in between my elbow and my shoulder. And then it yep. goes over top of my forearm and then my hand tucks underneath it and underneath the deal. And then that goes straight to my, from on the back side of my arm to the butt of my gun and it's tight. And so that I can, um, you know, support the weight of the rifle that way, which is just a modified, um, way of doing, it's basically the hasty, um, method. And that's how I yep. do it because I do that hunting and, and, uh, when match, I'm like, you know, we're shooting a 25 pound rifle. Well, mine's 19 and a half pounds, but like I've shot up to a 26 pound rifle before. And, you know, when you're shooting that gun offhand, you gotta have, like, you need to have allowed some sort of support as far as the sling goes. But there is ways to be very effective at shooting offhand. And so. I I don't see a problem with an offhand shot or two here. It obviously shouldn't be the whole match, but you know, a stage in a match, you know, like eight shots or something like that out of two hundred. I think that's completely fair. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. So I mean, Australia as well. Um, we typically only have a one forty to one sixty round match. Okay. And they're typically between what fourteen to sixteen stages. Okay. Two days or one yeah. day? Two days, yeah. Okay, because we do a lot of uh like sometimes you'll shoot fourteen in the day, fourteen stages. So Yeah, okay, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> every now and again, that's not very often, but a lot of like twelve stages in a day. Like that's completely normal. Uh last weekend we shot well, yeah, we shot 12 stages on day one and then seven stages on day two. Uh, yeah, okay. So 19 stages. And that was, you know, like that's normal for a day one. Um, usually it's uh, 12 and 8 um, or 11 and 9 just because people, yeah, okay. they're trying to give people time to get home and get the awards done and stuff like that. But like for me, I'm like... I completely understand. Like I would, I would not mind seeing a fourteen and ten, because most of the time ten stages runs pretty fast. Fourteen stages, everybody wants to shoot, and fourteen stages would mean you're there from like, you know, you start shooting at eight in the morning and you'd be done at five. And because what yeah, else? Okay. What else are you gonna do? You know, we get done, go to the hotel. We get done at like two. Go to the hotel, shower sit around for an hour and a half, two hours, and then go to eat, and we eat an early dinner, and then go back, talk, and then sleep. Well, if we just got done at five, you'd just leave the range, go home, shower, and go to dinner, go to bed, you know, or or just go to dinner and then go to take a shower and go to bed, you know. It's not like... Yeah, yeah. It, it's just, we're there to shoot anyways, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah, what's the point in having downtime when you could spend that shooting? Yeah, yeah. I get it. And but I understand, uh, like, there's the components issue. I understand components are hard to come by, all that type of stuff. But shooting is fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing as well. Like, how how efficient 
at your stage is run. Like as soon as somebody finishes, is your next person up ready to go and straight into it? Like, because yeah, it seems like just by hearing it, like we we seem a lot less efficient with getting people through stages from the sounds of things. Because you know, how many squads yeah. are you guys running? Say you got a hundred and. So you have eighty guys at a match. How many how many squads is that? Typically four max. Oh really? So you got twenty yeah. guys in a squad. Yeah. That's why it takes that. all day. Yeah. Okay. See, we have a maximum of ten usually per squad. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's very different. So, like last weekend, you know, there was nineteen squads. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that's, that's a big crazy. match. Like, that's a huge match. That that's. Uh, one of the biggest of the year. Um, that was the PRC, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, there's... Oh, man. Uh, it's... you. So what we found is, like, if you have squads of... Eight is almost the ideal... Seven to eight is, like, the ideal number of, like... It's not too fast that you can get ready. Uh, um, so you're all, you don't feel rushed all the time, but, yeah. but it's efficient enough to where, to where like, as soon as you're, you're ready to go, you're, you're cut, you're almost up and then, and then it's like you, you shoot and then you don't have too much downtime and you can kind of stay locked in. But like, if there, if there's 20 guys, like that's like two hours per stage. Yeah. So like, yeah, yeah you're like. To run seven stages in a day, that's like fourteen hours. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's it's hard to stay focused, I find, when, you know I mean the last match I was at, I think it was like fifteen or something people in a squad. And yeah, it's it's a long time between when you shoot and you're moving on to the next stage. Yeah, it's we had eleven focused. in our squad last week and that that's like an hour per stage. Yeah. Well, maybe it was probably for more like 45, 50 minutes. But I mean, we're we're fairly efficient, you know. Like it's like you might have two minutes. Um, the shooter's gonna shoot for two minutes, and then about a minute to two minutes to clear the line, and then and then away you go again, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Um, like, is they're getting all your brass, getting the guy out, the next guy out, the next guy's, you know, they're they're reading. Um, you know, shooter ready, and he's getting making sure everything's ready, and then standby go. Like that takes some time, but yeah. So say you, if you said four minutes per shooter, um, roughly, or even five minutes per shooter, if if it's you know, if you just get to give it a a number, you know, that's and then you have eleven guys. Like that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. How many? And I mean, with you guys as well, do you spot and do the scoring um, as well as competitors, or do your ROs do that? So there's different there's different uh, scoring. Um, what do they call them? Uh, I can't remember. They're scoring options. So most of the time you have, so you always have an RO that is um, going to control the iPad. Um, yep. But then there is there is different scoring options where you'll have an RO with the iPad, but then shooters are calling hits or misses. 
and then the RO is the responsibility uh, has the responsibility of uh, putting making any changes to the scores and entering scores on the iPad and controlling the safety. And then there's um, then there's the option of of ROs running the iPad plus doing the scoring and spotting. We're all spotting is like backups and stuff, um, but yeah, it's just um, which that to me I I like the when you have ROs right. It's um, but I, but I yeah. understand that it's definitely difficult um, to produce. You know, if say if it's that way, there's two ROs per stage. I don't know that you need. I think that. Um, which that's 40, if you're running 20 stages, that's 40 ROs, which they had last weekend, which was insane. Um, yeah. Because they were, were running 19 um, stages all simultaneously, <laughs> right? So Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, because, which, I don't know, that's that's a big match, right? So, most of the time yeah. in the West, the the matches range in, like, number of competitors somewhere between at least 80 up to 150 and then back east or like texas oklahoma and then all the way out to like the east coast or some of the bigger matches out here like the hornady match you know you're talking yeah uh, 150 to uh 200 plus yeah okay um i would say average match size um on that side of the country would be somewhere around uh, 170 and then on this side of the country it's somewhere around like 120 maybe 100 yeah okay no just because we're so much f- more spread out and and less dense population but out there there's so many um people that shoot that you know like you just get big numbers and it's it's fun yeah no that's fair enough the the vibe and the energy would be very different with that many people yeah oh yeah it'd be exciting <laughs> But it, yeah. but it allows for, like, the option, like, when you come out here, uh, if you have nine squads of ten at a match, right, you run uh, ten stages one day and nine stages, or, you know, or twelve stages one day and then nine stages the second day or eleven and nine or something like that, um, you know, and you have ten guys a squad, like, you can, you can really run through um, some stages fast where... If we only had four squads, we were probably going to be lucky to get through 16 stages in a match. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've, we, uh, yeah. They've done that a couple times. Tried like, oh, we're going to do, uh, we're going to do, uh, we're going to take 12 squads on one day and then um, and shoot 12 stages. And then day two, we're going to break those four of those squads down and separate them among um eight squads and then try to run eight stages the next day and what ends up happening is is you finish the day the exact same time both days yeah okay because it's just less efficient to do that yeah okay so it sounds like we need to learn from you guys and have much smaller squads yeah yeah because if you're running eight stages in a day yeah, just spread it out to where you got eight stages running at once. Yeah. All of a sudden. Yeah, cool. What, and I've been in matches where we only had five five uh, guys in the squad, and it runs super fast, and it's fun. 
it takes a second to get used to that pace because you're you're just you just there is no downtime it's just constantly getting ready for the next um the next stage but it's really pretty fun yeah, well, it'd be easier to maintain your focus, wouldn't it? Because you, oh yeah, you know, you're constantly, yeah, instead of just sitting around for all that downtime. Oh yeah, last weekend with eleven in our squad, it was a little bit longer, but not not bad. It was very, it was pretty well run. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, we're and do you guys pick your squads for every match? Um, for the most part, uh, I've been at some. Yeah. Okay. I've. I like it. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing some matches where it's like random squatting, right? Um, where yep. they, you just got assigned to be in a squad. It would be fun because I've had I've had a lot of fun um, at matches where I just don't know people. I could see how yep. that would turn some people off, though. They'd be like, nah, I'm not going to that match because because let's face it, we want to go shoot with our friends. Like, yeah, of course. You know, it's nice to travel with a group of guys, and then no, you're going to shoot with those group of guys as well. Yeah, yeah. And people talk about super squads, and they're like, "Oh, you're just shooting with the super squad." It's like, not, <laughs> no. Like, I'm sorry. Just after a while of going to matches, and and you you just get to know like you get to know people, and you know you you shoot or shoot around um, guys long enough, pretty soon you're friends and you want to shoot with each other right and so yeah of course and then that gets labeled as a super squad yeah you're gonna bring everyone up to your level yeah and have good competition that's healthy yeah yeah because yeah. yeah for our squads it's all random so you, you never get to choose who you get to shoot with which wouldn't be bad too like you would just get to be friends with everybody and that's i don't see anything wrong with that like uh I'm going to a match this weekend in New Hampshire, which is is east is you can basically get a match over here, northeast. Um, and it's about as northeast as you can go, isn't it? Yeah, it's one state away from as northeast as you can go. It's just yeah, okay, barely cool. west of Maine, right? So uh, it's yeah, it's way over there. And anyway, it's uh, I, the first time I went over there. Like I had no, the only person I knew in my squad was Matt Allwine and that was it. It was just me and him. It was fun. We, uh, but I mean, like, uh, I remember going there and shooting. (laughs) It was this, it was a cool format, which if you guys, um, anybody listening, uh, it's, it's the, I think it's the, back then it was called the New England something match, I think. And then now it's called Alderbrook, Alderbrook Brawl. Um, but when I went over there, it it uh, was just completely well. You could choose your squad, but I mean, I had no idea who was over, who was going, or anything like that. So I yeah, just got cool. in. And me and Matt were flying together. And we we show up there, and uh, it was you just wrote your name down, and like you didn't. They're like, yeah, you don't wait for the guys in your squad. Just keep going to the next stage. Um, oh, okay. And so, basically, those guys, and they just there was no order or anything. And those guys just shot for day one. They just we didn't see our squad after the first stage. Like we got together, and then they just boom left us. And we're like, okay. So we would just show up <laughs> behind 
behind the people, whoever was in front of us, and then me and Matt would take turns going first because, well, there was nobody, there was no particular order, and we had yeah. nobody to follow or anything like that. So we would just kind of just show up behind um, whoever was up on this thing. But like, yeah, we didn't see any of them. Well, turns out we were staying at the same hotel as like all these people, and me and Matt were figuring we were, you know, like like one, two, three-ish after day one. And uh, they they all of a sudden were like, who are these guys? And then and then we shot with them all day too because they were like, who the heck are these? You know, they didn't know. They, they were thinking, who the heck are these guys like day one? And then they were like, yeah. who the heck are these guys? And what do they know? We don't know after day, <laughs> after day one, you know? And yeah. So then, then we shot with them all day too and it was fun. Um, but yeah, okay. it's just it's just a cool opportunity when you run into those situations where you don't know anybody to just get to know people and have fun. So I really enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So yeah, that's interesting. So how would you? I guess so. For us, we still have. So it sounds like your matches are a little bit uh, like some of the East Coast matches. Um, in the fact that they're like uh, a lot of times they're lanes, but that's due to the fact that out at, on, in the East Coast, I'm speaking in broad generalizations here, but in the East Coast, uh, there's a lot of like tree lanes. And the, since you have to chop down trees, it's the most efficient way to make a range is to just chop down a lane of trees and not like an entire field, right? Well, out here, yeah. there's no, there's n- to the trees. Is nothing like it is out there, and you have mountains and stuff, and so you can scatter targets everywhere. Um, but since back there they they're narrow, they're li- you're limited in the in the X plane as far as like where you put your targets. You just put them down the lane, but yeah, but they're still long, right? You you know you're going to have shots out to a thousand. Um, um, so that's the, a difference, but because it's, there's not a lot of target acquisition, there's a lot of tight time limits, a lot of movement, things like that. We're out here. Sometimes you're going to run into matches where, uh, you know, half the stages are five target stages and, and a lot of troop lines and you just lay down and shoot, which, well, that's a lot of like the Oklahoma styles, just like a lot of lay down, shoot for 75% of the stuff or modified prone. You know, out here you get a mix of positional and and distance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you, you're challenged in shooting and target acquisition more so than complexity of a stage and time limits because, you know, you, you can focus on the shooting more. Yep. You've got more flexibility. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. to me, it sounds like I would make, like, for, like, what – if I was shooting like where you're at, I would want like a, a like a sixteen pound six dasher. Yeah, okay. Because That's I would just I would just want something that was just like light and I could chuck around and handle really fast. Which I've been going lighter and lighter all the time on my guns. I don't know about sixteen. It would be hard to get it balanced correctly. Yeah. Um. Which that's what I've run into right now is my gun weighs nineteen point six and uh and it's and that's as light as I can get it, but and also be balanced correctly. 
Um, so it's just, there's a balance there. I just, for me, I don't, I don't feel like, I feel like there's a point of diminishing t- returns on weight, but like you could get away with a 16 pound dasher and probably be just fine. You know? Yeah. Okay. Man, that, it would be fun. It would be interesting to go shoot one over there. Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to, to see the contrast difference um, and how, and how the different rifle setups would perform in different types of, um, you know, types of matches. Because, yeah, I mean, here I'd say the majority of the people that win matches are all just running a, a 6BR. Um, and, yeah, I'd say the majority of their rifles are around 19 to 20 pounds um, with, with around a 26-inch barrel. So... You know, they're quick enough to move around, um, but yeah, low recoil um, because yeah, you just don't need the the ballistics or the speed if you're only shooting out to 500, of course. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So but yeah, my my rifle. Um, I'm just building a six BR barrel for it at the moment because oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm getting away from the six GT. Because I, I just don't need the performance of the 6GT. I just don't need the speed. So it's just extra recoil for no reason, really. Um, but, yeah, I've got – it's funny because everyone always assumes and thinks that I have one of the, the heaviest rifles in sort of, you know, in matches. But it's only, it's only what, 21, 21 and a half pounds. Um, but, yeah, that's because I run a straight barrel, a 1.25 inch you know truck axle um, oh so yeah gosh. everyone just everyone just assumes that i have one of the heaviest rifles in the series uh, but i don't know there, there are people with heavier rifles um but yeah, everyone just assumes mine is the heaviest um, which i mean if you i mean if you shoot a block i mean there is a benefit to the weight right there's yeah like and it's unquestionable there is a benefit to having weight uh, behind you. Like, well, where that weight is placed makes a big role for me. So when I talk about rifle balance, like I think if the balance, um, a heavy um, gun that's not balanced properly is, I mean, almost as bad as having a gun that weighs 10 pounds, right? Absolutely. Because it's just cumbersome. It, it's it's hard to do. It doesn't do its job. And so I see a lot of guys um, say, well, especially like the weight kits being produced by certain uh, manufacturers, like that you can put rear weights on a gun, which I, I almost laugh at that, you know? Yeah, it, it's like the worst thing you can do. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, people don't under, like if you're putting, which... Don't take this offensively, I guess. Uh, uh, if you're if you're one of those guys with the rear weights in on your gun, but you really need to take a hard look at and out there. There could be a reason to have one on there, right? Like there's a point where the the balance point of your gun could be too far forward. There's a oh, situation where that could happen. It's harder to get that than it is um, to have the the balance point. Um, too far back. A lot of guys will put their hand on the magwell 
and then be like, oh yeah, it's balanced, perfect. And I always laugh because yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's not balanced, perfect. Like, because you, I don't know, it just is not like if we're shooting an elephant right in Africa and we want this gun that we can shoot offhand, great. Well, maybe that would be balanced, okay for that, right? Because it's an offhand Absolutely. shot. But we're not taking offhand yeah. shots, like. Um, we're 99% of what we do. In fact, if, if we are taking off hand shots, we can overcome that, um, having the balance point forward, um, by technique, uh, for those, you know, whatever eight, like you say, you take eight shots out of 200, um, offhand, you're going to, you're going to be able to figure out a way to overcome that effectively. Um, yeah, absolutely. but what are you going to do for the other, um, 192 rounds, right? Like if your gun is balanced for the, for the eight rounds, like you set, you need to set your gun up. Um, this is one of my soap boxes, I guess you need to set your gun up for the majority of our shots, which is taken off of a bag, um, in some sort of positional stage. And if you want the most effective, uh, balanced rifle, I think you need to take whatever bag you're shooting and you need to put it on something, measure it, and then cut the, that measurement in half. And you're, that's the minimum. So if you, so, so whatever the surface that you're placing your rifle on, you measure the whole length of that surface and then chop that measurement in half. So say it's 10 inches, that's five inches, right? That's the center of your bag. That's the minimum, um, your balance point needs to be away from the front of your mag well or wherever your your gun begins contact with that bag for me it's the front of the mag well so that's my minimum uh, balance point needs to be there i would say that an inch or two ahead of that is even better and the reason is is because then you're using the weight of your rifle to mitigate uh, muzzle jump because then it has to move. absolutely yeah it has to move to the balance point before it can go up right yeah. Um, yeah, because if you've got that much weight out there, it's really hard to move it up. So, uh, if I don't know if I'm explaining myself properly, but I think so. If your bag is say, say, uh, 10 inches, um, then I think your balance point needs to be between five and six inches. If it's eight inches, it needs to be between four and five inches. Um, yeah. I think mine is mine's usually balanced somewhere around five inches away. If it's a little less, you're okay, right? I mean, it's going to be fine, but yeah, just, close enough. just know that it's better to be in the middle to a little bit in front of that um, for muzzle mit muzzle mitigating muzzle jump. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you bring that up because I did a video on that recently where it's, I said the exact same thing. Um it's on my Instagram and the YouTube, I think, as well. So, yeah, if, if you want your barrel, your rifle to sit on the bag and it to be neutral with its balance point, yeah, it has to be in the middle of the bag. So that's you know, between four and five inches. But having a front-heavy bias is a little bit better and a little bit nicer, that, that extra inch. You know, yeah, yeah, and, like and the inch in balance is huge. Just one inch. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Like uh it makes a difference in the feel it makes a difference in the wobble it makes a difference in a lot of things that people don't even like 
they don't even realize until you shoot one and then you're like wow this gun this gun just settles and it's like well this gun just it, it has no choice but to settle because it's balanced properly yeah absolutely and that's that's why i do the whole straight barrel thing as well because i feel like yep. it takes that just one step further because having the barrel so heavy and so much weight in the barrel i find that it's harder to create muzzle rise and yep. muzzle movements because there's more weight in the barrel um yep. so yeah i find it just mitigates that well, muzzle rise just a little bit extra well i think what it does is exactly what we're saying is it places your balance point farther forward right yeah it, it's just because that's all uh, all you're really doing is moving your center of gravity further away right if you had a smaller um if you had a smaller diameter um barrel you're going to just move your balance point closer to you and then you would have to overcome that which most people do um by now using weights um and if you don't have that option then you have to do it with your with your uh with your barrel where yeah absolutely um I like the flexibility of the weight systems to be able to to control where my um, balance point is. But uh, that was one of my complaints with the MPA uh, matrix um, was when I had the when I had the matrix versus the matrix pro. The matrix um, was a little too rear heavy, and so I had to put more weights on and use a heavier um, contour to have the balance point where I wanted it. Um, and so it resulted in a gun that was, you know, about three pounds heavier. Now I have the pro and, you know, you took some weight out of the back of that thing. And now all of a sudden you have a gun that's balanced properly without as much weight. And I can get away with a few pounds less because, uh, you know, one pound in the rear takes quite a bit more in the fore end of a rifle to balance it out or a lot more, um, barrel profile. And, uh, say when I didn't, like when I first got my matrix, I didn't know that it came with the, with the rear weight in the, in the chassis. And I didn't know where it was at. I didn't know you had to take the whole, oh, okay. the whole <laughs> pad off and to take that thing out. And I was like, holy smokes. I remember I just kept just piling on all my weights until it was, until it balanced all right. And it was still a little bit farther back than I liked. I mean, it was fine. I used it like that for a while, but it was like 26 pounds. And I was like, what the crap? And I mean, I didn't like that. I took the, immediately, I took the, when I figured out that where there was a weight back there, I took it out and it takes, you know, that's a whole pound because that's a big old bar that they got in there. And then all of a oh, sudden wow. it made that balance so much better, but I left all the weights in it and, and it, and it balanced pretty good. So, but the pro yeah, man, okay. the matrix pro, that's the biggest thing I've noticed about it. I mean, the wider foreign cool. The adjustable rear um, buttstock, that's her bag rider. That's pretty pretty neat too. But the fact that it's a little lighter back there, that makes it so much. To me, that's that's the biggest deal about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be keen to uh, have a play with one of them and see how it goes because I love how the Matrix feels, but we don't have the pros here yet. But yeah, everyone that runs them, they do have to run a heavier setup to get it to balance. Yeah, yeah, it being a bit lighter in the rear, that'd make it real nice. Yep. Yeah, because the the grip on it, just how it puts your hand, the position it puts your hand in, it is very nice and well thought out. I do like that a lot. Yep. 
so um one question so a long time ago we uh it's been forever ago since this you posted a video on facebook and um you had some uh you we we commented back and forth for a second on it and i, I just wanted to get the chance to talk about it this is um i'll just read your caption you said weekend didn't go as planned uh dropped a lot of easy shots on the first day but um still in it and then completely tanked on second day came and came in 10th found myself rushing and trying to make shots happen that weren't there and then finishing with 30 seconds to go so during the drive home we figured out a solid plan for me to combat this so hopefully i flip this bad habit and have a good showing for the next round my question to you is is i don't know if you remember that this but during the drive home what was this plan so i remember that match well um it was very tough mentally on me um i'm not gonna make excuses but i rocked up at that match um and my gun was shooting like two inches when i was zeroing it um and i couldn't really get it to shoot much better so mentally i struggled the whole match with that it was almost like it defeated me before i shot the match um but yeah putting that aside and not making excuses for the gun because you know every every miss was me not the gun um i found when i was driving home because i was looking through my matchbook because every single time i have a stage i write down how how i went um what i what i think i did well and the reasons for all of my misses um and when i was going home and i was reading through the matchbook the trend adding up all of the misses based on what i'd written down um it was just me rushing trying to get shots off that weren't there i needed to just settle that extra half a second second before i broke the shot um so yeah my plan was to get a timer and shoot with the timer um and just learn to better pace myself because you know what's the point in you know 10 shot stage it's 90 seconds finishing it in a minute and dropping the last shot or dropping you know one shot at some point during the the stage it's like what's the point take that extra 30 seconds and make that you know make every shot count so that was more or less my plan um i did that and in the next match i felt like i used more of the time of every stage and didn't really have that problem um as much or you know really at all i didn't really find myself finishing stages with tons of time and missing shots um so yeah i, I was happy with that so a right a timer that you use during the stage or a timer that you use in practice uh both so i bought one of those timers that goes on your wrist and um during stages where i think i'll need it um i'll just i'll start the, the timer at the start of the stage and um if i get to a shot where i feel like i'm rushing or i feel like 
I'm about to rush the shot. Like, um, you know, I feel like it's not a great position or the shot's not there. I'll quickly check the timer and see how much time I do have. And based on where I am in the stage and how long I've sort of planned in my head where I should be at each position time-wise, I'll either, you know, speed up because, you know, I, I don't have time or I'll, you know, slow down and, you know, um, make the shot count. Okay. I like yeah. it. No, I, cause I do, I do similar. I need to get a better, I need to get a timer, um, for, um, shooting. I need to get a good one that I like for, um, use during competition. I don't yeah, have okay. one right now that, uh, that I've been able to use and be able to start effectively, I guess. Uh, Chad Heckler, um, a five by five precision. He's got one that, uh, that, that I usually have with me and, uh, I, I should have used it more last weekend. I just didn't. Um, I need to get another one of his cause I beat the crap out of it and I use it yeah. fairly regular. Um, but I've been really liking, I've been seeing some guys with these talking timers, um, made by spur scientific S P E R scientific, uh, that okay. are really, they're, they're kind of fragile. So they say order one or two of them or order an extra one when you order one. But uh, they'll, I've seen guys Velcro them on their electronic ears, so you just reach up and touch it on your ear, and then it'll tell you a minute, and then it'll tell you every 10 seconds for the last minute. So you'll say minute, one minute, and like, so say if you're on a 90-second stage, it'll tell you at, at one minute remaining, and 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, and then at 10, it'll go 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and then beat. And that right there... I really need one, so I've been going to get one, uh, but I just have been dragging my feet because I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. I, the other place that I've seen it um, be a good place for it is up on the bell of the scope or on the side of the rifle somewhere. Yeah. Um, those are people who just put a piece of Velcro on the gun, put a piece of Velcro on the on the deal, and either have it on their, on their electronic ear pro um, or or they'll have it on their the uh, side of their gun somewhere and it seems to work really well um, just because then you don't have to take your eyes away from what's going on I've tried um, wrist watch ones that um, like on like an iPod or, like, or, or on an uh, Apple watch that vibrate and talk I can't get that to work great the other thing I've been going to try is like running my AirPods in underneath my ear pro and then uh oh yeah and then having like a video that you start or whatever or something like and you start it and then and let's say it's whatever and you just have something that starts it i guess and then you can um like i know one guy that had one and uh, that he would start it and then it was his wife just telling him one minute left, <laughs> 30 seconds, <laughs> 20 seconds, 10, you know, and which I don't know. I thought it was, there's anything like that to, to do it because the visual ones I think are good. Um, I know several guys that have those 
like the little thumb timers that work really well. I don't know. There's all kinds of things that I've been I've been looking at that uh, I want to figure out to to get basically better. I don't know. Yeah, no, that that's actually sounds awesome. Like I didn't even know that was a thing. So um, I'm definitely going to check that out when I get home later. <laughs> um, yeah, because yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Just being told, you know, you know. 40 30 20 you know that'd be awesome so yeah yeah i think that definitely help that's what so that's where i think i'm gonna probably get one i just haven't yet um yeah because pacing yourself is it's tough and it's and it's especially tough like when like last last weekend it was 99 second stages like yeah okay like so with some art how do you pace yourself you know it's not 90 it's not 120 it's 99 and like all these stages like you know i timed out um just on day two on on five rounds i think that i hit so i would have won the match if i would have got two of those that's it that's all i needed oh okay so yeah, like wow so i mean like and and that was just on day one day two i timed out on another i think three rounds so uh yeah you know and the funny thing on day day two though i hit every one of those rounds was the thing i timed out like just barely on on yeah no it was four rounds but i timed out on them and hit them so yeah okay so it was funny because it was like it was like i close my bolt and start squeezing beep boom you know so is what it is yep yeah okay but if i would have had a timer i probably would have won the match i've been kicking myself over that yeah okay yeah so. no. <laughs> yeah that, that's one of those things yeah it's it's frustrating it's tricky yeah absolutely absolutely so yeah, yeah that, that's huge yeah because yeah, i've nice. i've been both i've been in both places i've been in the place where where i finish with 30 seconds and on you know a few stages and get an eight out of a 10 instead of a 10 out of 10 just going too fast you know just making bad yep. trigger pulls doing that just going way too fast and then I've also been in a place like I was just talking about where, you know, you barely time out on some rounds that you just wouldn't have timed out on if you'd have known that you were about to time out, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, I, there is, I just, I don't know. I had, because I, I'm, I'm left-handed. There hasn't been as many um, really good options. Like, uh, and that's one thing, the MPA, I really think we need to figure out something um, to have a little timer um, that it's easy it's easy to start um, for um, right-handed and left-handed people um, yeah there's some options out there for some other chassis and I think we we probably need to get something yeah so anyways because yeah. that's been that's been one of the biggest things for me with just you know me and my progression with shooting is learning to slow down and take my time because yeah i i've always been really fast which is great but it's not great if i'm you know missing shots and finishing with time still on the clock so yeah i've just been working on that a lot lately just moving fast because i'd like to shoot fast and i like to move fast and you know focusing on the pros moving fast but then slowing down for the shots and 
ever since um, I saw that one shot drill thing that you did, um, I've been practicing that. I, I really like that. Um, I've been really focusing on that and doing that every time I shoot now. And I find that that's, you know, that's controlling the urge to shoot too fast. So, you know, move fast, move fast between positions, do transitions, you know, rack the ball fast. But then when it comes to actually pulling the trigger, just you know, take that two seconds, three seconds to pull the trigger and do it perfect every time. And yeah, I'm finding that really helps. Yeah. Yeah. One. Yeah. Cause I mean, I think going fast, being efficient like you are is a strength. And I think that's something that shouldn't be uh, frowned upon. Right. Like, yeah, like you should go fast, like going fast is good. Um, but I think what happens is, is when we start going fast, we, uh, we do everything fast. Like, right. Let's, uh, the yeah, temptation absolutely. is, is that's to go, problem. to go a hundred percent fast of everything fast. And then there's, and then also, then all of a sudden when you're like, well, I need to slow down, then everybody slows everything down. And that's also the wrong way to do it. Like you have to find a, um, a place where you can almost, it's almost like switching gears, right? Yeah, yeah, speed up and then slow down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's almost just like, um, yeah, you, well, certain things need to be done, I say, um, subconsciously, right? And those things I think you can do really fast, right? Because you do them fast, yeah. like, right? You you move your, I've watched your videos, um, like, you move everything very efficiently, right? You move your bag, you put it in position, you put your gun on top of it. Like everything's the same every time. It's deliberate, everything like that. Then, but the thing is when I feel like when my bolt closes and my finger touches the trigger, then I need to, that needs to be, there needs to be a shift in my brain from, from like just kind of going through the motions and thinking about. So what I, what I tend to be doing during that time is thinking about like what I need to do as far as shot process is that um like i might be thinking about where the last bullet impacted what i held what i need to hold on this next one like all that stuff's kind of going through my head while i'm moving to the next position yep um but then i'm but then from there i'm uh as soon as my bolt closes, now all of a sudden, now I'm thinking that because I've processed all that information while I'm doing all this other stuff subconsciously, right? Now when my bolt closes and my finger touches the trigger, now I'm thinking I'm about my shot process. Level my gun, put my finger on the trigger, squeeze, you know, and just squeezing a really good shot and holding it to the rear. That's kind of where I'm going. And then I'm trying to figure out where the round hit again. And as soon as I see where yep. the round hits and I, and I'm able to, to measure my correction, then I move on, you know, and then I'm, yep. then I'm either running the bolt and doing it again, or I'm going back into the mode of, you know, the next position. Yeah. No, no, I, I really like that. Yeah. I hope it's that's what, like, you know, go ahead. I, yeah, it's the way I see it. It's almost like, you know, moving quickly, moving quickly, you know, just we know how to move a bag. We know how to move positions. We know how to get into position. You know, the only thing you're really thinking about is, you know, 
the nuances of the stage, remembering, you know, um, if you need to do a mag change and things like that, or where I need to be on the prop so I can see the target if there's something, you know, obstructing it. And then as soon as you, you know, see the target, close your bolt, then you just, you're going into slow motion almost, you know, yeah. you're thinking about the wind, you know, I'm holding four tenths, you know, everything's good, pressing the trigger, pressing the trigger, boom, it goes off, seeing my impact, I'm, you know, assessing where it is, yep, I know what I'm going to hold for the next stage, then fast forward again, run the bolt, and then slow motion again, and then doing the same thing, so, yeah, and I really like that, I think it's helping yeah. me out tons. Yeah, it's just a matter of breaking things down into bite-sized chunks that then can be um, practiced, right? Yep. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people don't or aren't able to do that. Maybe it's just because they have never thought about doing it that way. I guess you know, like you, you go out, people go out and practice, and they'll they'll run some stages, and they they run a bunch of stages, and then they feel like, oh yeah, it was a good time or whatever. But I don't know if I really got any better, right? Well, they don't yeah, even think you're about essentially just better. having fun, really. Yeah, yeah, and that's great and all, but uh, for me, I, I, it's fun for me to go out and practice and improve. And to do that, it just sometimes just takes me, um, just slowing down and practicing each thing. And one day. My one-shot drill could be I could I could focus on different positions. I can focus on where I put my bag, test different things. But I'm always going to do everything in my process and overemphasize doing it perfectly. And then if I need to get faster, I can get faster. But I do that. Um, I don't I don't try to uh, I try to get faster at individual things. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So it all adds up. Yep. Yeah, and then the eventually, of things. exactly. Eventually, it can become really, really fast, but but yet I still want to place emphasis on on putting the putting the right emphasis on the right things. I guess I should say. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's pretty much going to be the majority of my training at the moment. Just yeah, just doing those one shot drills and just fast, and then just slow motion as soon as you know the bolt closes and I'm. Yep. on the trigger yeah and anybody listening that's curious about what video we're talking about and what i mean by one shot drills uh one shot drills have been around for a long time they've been called plenty of different names but uh anarchy outdoors aaron Jines, um he's my neighbor and uh he's like hey i'd like to go practice with you and can we shoot some videos and i was like yeah sure so we go out there and we shot a couple videos and this is one of them because uh like this is the way I practice, and people when they show up and practice with me, they go, like, "What are you doing?" You know, and so I, so I explain it to them and my philosophy behind it because it's not like I'm doing anything that's not been around. Like one shot drills have been a thing; people have done it for a long time. But my philosophy and the way that I do it, I think, is very unique. Yeah, and so yep. I think we do a pretty good job of of explaining it, and it's in its entirety i think there's so many i mean certain little things that i um maybe uh didn't do the best job of of uh of explaining but i think i did we did a pretty dang good job it's a long video but if you're 
if you're interested, uh, it's on the Anarchy Outdoors um, YouTube page. Um, just called One Shot Drills, and uh, yeah, you check it out. It's pretty. It's pretty good. Pretty good little yeah, video. I think everyone I think. will. Everyone will benefit from watching that and trying it out. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to. I I've got the footage to do. I did a troop line video as well, um, but I've been gonna ha- um, send the. I've been meeting for now a month to send that footage to MPA so they can do one, uh, a video with that. Oh, yeah. So hopefully I get that. I'm going to wrangle that, that stuff up and then send it over to, to Lauren. Um, and she'll hopefully be able to put it together. It's it, the thing is, is I did it with a, with a trigger cam. So on my gun, plus he's got a spotting scope on, um, and he's got, uh, a camera on me that and so it's got three different videos it's got to be strung together and so there's a little oh, that'll be awesome yeah it'll be cool it's just going to take a bunch of editing and yeah of course i gotta get yeah. it i gotta get that together for her to, to do yeah no i'm really enjoying all the footage i see at the moment of people you know having a, a camera on them shooting and then having the trigger cam as well i think it's i think that's the way to go it's pretty awesome yeah yeah, I've I've enjoyed it too. I, in fact, it might have been two months ago we did we did all this. It's just been a matter of just getting. Uh, I don't know. Well, I've been busy. I was shooting a bunch. We had a kid, you know. So I just gotta I just gotta get it over to her. Yeah, of course. So, but uh, anything else that you uh, any any other news with strikes without warning? Um. Um. Well, today I'm going to be shooting a, a video today on um, caliber size of muzzle brake versus the caliber that you're actually shooting. So you run the 6.5 Creedmoor, you've got a 30 cal brake and a 6.5 brake. Yep. Um, what the difference in recoil is. So I'm going to be shooting that video today and doing some testing um, so people can just get an idea of, you know, what the difference actually is. Um, I've got some TMBs and some Area 419 Sidewinders, so I'll do both. Um, so we can see if there is actually a difference between the two different um, styles of brakes and, you know, if it matters. Um, so, yeah, that video will be done today. I've got a very extensive recoil test video, video coming up in about a week, two weeks. Um, so it's like the, the second part of that first recoil video that um, you've seen. Mm-hmm. So this second one's going to have, like, I think it's 11 different muzzle brakes in it um, right on and yeah we're going to go through all of them see how they all perform um i'll go in just a little bit of depth of following up you know explaining muzzle brakes as well um but then we're also going to do uh through the scope with the trigger cam um so we'll put all the different muzzle brakes um on my gun and i'll run you know i'll run some skill stage two and we'll see what it's like to actually shoot through the scope with all the different brakes, um, which I think will be very interesting. Um, I'm going to try and get um, another top 10 shooter here in Australia to do it as well. So we'll have like some contrast between the two of us doing it. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about that video coming out. I know there's you know tons of people that know it's coming and have been waiting for it. Um, but yeah, we've just got, Tons of prototypes and tons of samples that have arrived in the last week or two. 
Um, we've got the the Morgan King edition, which uh, I'm sure you're pretty excited about. That, yep. They said that'll be done any day now. Um, so, yeah, I'll be sending you your gold TMB uh, for the world champs oh, pretty boy. soon, which I'm really excited about. Um, and that, that will have the, uh, the inserts, the removable inserts, so you can change the caliber. Oh, it, yeah. Um, which is cool. Um, we'll see if people, you know, actually use that feature or not. But, you know, it's there. I think it's still pretty cool. Um, and then, yeah, I have a very big, very big project, um, a very important prototype for me that I've been working on for the last year. Um, which I won't go into too much detail, but I'll be showing you over the next week or two. Um, yeah, that's that's being finalised, and yeah, that's going to be very exciting. So, yeah, there's lots of things happening here um, on my end. So, yeah, it's it's good, it's exciting. We're growing every day, which is awesome, and yeah, everyone seems to be pretty happy um, with the product. So yeah, just oh, yeah. trying to trying to do better every day and just. Uh, get the word out i'm excited i uh yeah. yeah everybody that i know that that tries them seems to really like them so yeah if you haven't if you haven't looked at one um check one out um i i it's hard to get a hold of one because it seems like they sell out so fast yeah but uh when they're available i mean which i think is there a few left right now um so I've got about 15 of the 308 ones in stock at the moment. That's pretty much all I've got left. Um, but Anarchy Outdoors, um, they're a TMB without warning dealer now. Yep. Um, and they've got stock. I'm pretty sure they've got six fives and 308. So if Perfect. anyone wants them, just hit them up. Because, um, yeah, all the six fives are gone, but I'm pretty sure they still have a few. So, um yeah, they'll be stocking them from now on. So yeah, just hit them up and you'll be able to get um you'll be able to get one. Um yeah. but yeah, I mean I'm happy to do a uh a giveaway. I think that'd be fun and cool for the listeners um of a TMB. That's a good idea. We should do that. That's, yeah. So I yeah, we should uh which I guess Yeah, so so if you're listening I'll, um we'll uh we'll talk about it and figure out how to do it and then we can announce it in an upcoming episode yeah yeah that'd be cool that's perfect yeah and uh anarchy outdoors they have a good website so if you guys are looking to get one just hop on their website and uh you can order one straight from them um they they have a really good um warehouse and they won't it'll ship probably the next day so yeah well yeah they've just got tons of cool stuff and oh, good guys so oh yeah aaron is a um, he's a great guy, uh, one of my yeah. good friends. So, yeah, you're buying from good people. Buying from DJ or BJ, and you're buying from uh, Aaron. So it's it, it can't <laughs> be bad. So, well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, that's all right, bro. Um, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll talk at you later.